If you didn't know better, you'd reckon this blind, the man healed of his blindness was from Australia, wouldn't you? Or, or Manchester, where I'm from. It's that kind of larrikinness about him. When I was at school, Mr. Davenport, it's a long time ago now, Mr. Davenport, my design tech teacher, he decided that I was useless. And this, this is what he said, I quote, there's idle, there's bone idle, and there's Colin Taylor. That's what he said. To be fair, in his lessons, I was bone idle. See, the combination of subjects I'd chosen for the last two years of school meant that I had to do nine subjects instead of the usual eight. And I thought, well, nobody needs nine subjects. So I decided that my weakest subject, design tech, would be my unofficial rest period. You know? Now, it's not a good strategy, kids. Don't, don't do that. Work hard at everything. But had Mr. Davenport gone through my track record in other subjects where I was doing all right, and then kept treating me like I was bone idle, well, that would have been illogical, wouldn't it? That would have, wouldn't have been a rational thing to do. It would have been, been willfully blind to the facts. Willfully blind to the facts. Now, in um, Dan's Brown novel, The Da Vinci Code, you might think it's one of the worst novels ever written, the main character says this. Every faith in the world is based on fabrication. That's the definition of faith, acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. Now that just reflects what lots of people think, that to believe in Jesus is to believe in something or someone for which there is no evidence. But today we're going to see the reverse of that. In this chapter, uh, Jesus' conversation with the, the blind man who he heals, um, those conversations bookend the chapter. And in between, we've got several conversations in which people weigh up the evidence of this man's healing and what it means about Jesus who healed him. And we see a complete reversal of that Dan Brown theory. What we'll see is that the healed man carefully, logically, rationally weighs up the, the evidence switches his brain on, thinks, and that's what leads him to faith in Jesus. Whereas the Pharisees can only maintain their lack of faith by willfully, irrationally ignoring the evidence, by switching their brains off and stopping thinking. So the man who was blind, seeing with increasing insight and truth, and those who claim to have seen it all before, demonstrating their spiritual blindness. So there's an outline in your leaflets there, if you find that kind of thing helpful. First up, I was blind, but now see. Verses 1 to 12. So in verse 1, the disciples assume that there's a direct link between this man's blindness and sin. So rebelling against God. It's either his own sin or his parents' sin. Now, people born with blindness today can live um, independent lives. But in this man's society at the time, he would have been severely disadvantaged. He, would, he was reduced to begging for a living. He would have suffered a lot because of his blindness. So what's that to do with his own sin? Well, we know from um, Genesis' account of sin, our rebellion against God coming into the world, that sin does, in a general way, cause suffering and struggle in the world. And in that way, suffering is 
to remind us of the seriousness of sin and that sin causes death. But in this passage today, Jesus will not allow a direct line to be drawn between this man's blindness and his own, his own personal sin. Or his parents. But neither will Jesus allow that his suffering from blindness is pointless or random. Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, God has a purpose in this man's suffering. So that's a common objection to God's existence, isn't it? Um, how could an all-powerful, all-loving God allow any suffering? Well, God is all-powerful and all-loving, yes. But that's not the end of the story. He's also all-knowing. He knows everything. And he's eternal. He's also fair. And just so that sense of unfairness people get about suffering comes from God. But we can trust God is in control and has good purposes that we might not even be able to imagine. And in Jesus, God has put himself through unimaginable suffering on the cross to save us and win us forgiveness. Unimaginable suffering to bring us unimaginable eternal good. Now, if you are in anguish right now through suffering, please don't hear me invalidating or diminishing your suffering in any way. I'm not just saying cheer up, you know. But Jesus says that even if we can't possibly imagine what it could be, God has a good purpose. So to help us see God's purpose behind this man's blindness, we need some background. So hundreds of years before Jesus, God made promises to his people through um, prophets, and especially the prophet Isaiah, to send a rescuer, promises of a rescuer. And he told us lots of things. He gave us sort of a photo ephit of this rescuer, uh, and who would be this. I've got a couple of verses from it. Thanks, Robert. From Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, this rescue will be a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So at this point, God's people are metaphorically blind or in the dark. So the kind, as I said to the children before, the kind of darkness you feel when you've fallen out with a, a friend or family or you've had a fight at home, or maybe at work or college or school where... Um, you're being kept in the dark by a clique. You know, you're excluded by them. We're in the dark because we've all in our own way turned our backs on God. Breaking our relationship with him and leaving us in the dark is our default state. The Bible's clear that's a, that's a terrible place to be in the here and now, and particularly when we die if we're cut off from God for eternity. But God promises to send a rescuer who will bring us out of the darkness and into the light to enjoy relationship in light with God. So then Jesus comes into this scene and says, I am the light of the world. 
claiming to be that rescuer, claiming to save us from spiritual blindness. Jesus is claiming that we need him. And that's just one of several servant songs that give us this photo e-fit of what this rescue will be like. And Jesus healing this man is part of him showing that he fits the bill perfectly. So verses 6 and 7, heals the man. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I mean, let's not miss the significance. It's that a man who's born blind can see. Unheard of before. And this series is called Conversations with Jesus, but inconveniently for my series title, Jesus actually steps out of the conversation now until verse 35. And in between, we've got John, the writer of this gospel. His eyewitness account turns a bit sort of CSI Jerusalem now. Okay, People weighing up the evidence of what's gone on. So his neighbors check him out. Is it really him? But it's such an incredible thing that's happened. Some of them are like, nah. It can't be him. It just looks like him. So someone who looks like him. You notice John, the author of this, this gospel, he doesn't cherry-pick the facts to, to convince us of this miracle. He, he even includes in the gospel the case against it being a miracle. That's one of the reasons we can trust this account. It's, it's warts and all. Verse 12. They asked, the blind, they asked the man who's been healed, where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he says. You can always see him say, I don't know. don't even know what he looked like. He's never seen him, has he? When you think about it, this is the kind of conversation, exactly the kind of conversation you expect to happen with ordinary people trying to come to terms or come make sense of an extraordinary event. There's a ring of reality about it. So let's have a look then for our next two points, verses 13 to 34. Pick out the trajectory. First of all, we'll look at the Pharisees and then of the man himself. So first the Pharisees who were too blind to see. So a man who's blind from birth has been healed. And that's remarkable in itself. But if you add to that all these prophecies we looked at from Isaiah hanging in the air on everyone's lips, Surely those who dedicated themselves to studying the scriptures closely, surely they'd be excited about the miracle, or at least intrigued. No. What they're most bothered about is that it happened on a Sabbath, on the day of rest. And a day of rest which they'd made so many rules about what you could and you couldn't. I don't know if you've ever worked with somebody who skives off a lot. And they seem to make such an art form of skiving off and not doing work. You think, it'd just be easier if you did the work. That'd be less work than you skiving off. And so it was with the Pharisees. They'd made so many rules about how you must rest on the Sabbath. They'd made it a kind of a worky day, a hard work day. So verse 15, um, they're more concerned with how Jesus healed the man, if he'd broken any rules in doing that rather than that this man could see for the very first time in his life. 
And even after hearing all the evidence, even twice, they're still fixated by verse 26. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? It's like when you're trying to tell someone a funny story and that they're just missing the point of what you're trying to say, but they're just picking up on the details. You know, a oh, funny thing happened to me the other day. Oh, sorry, what day was this on? Oh, well, it was Tuesday, but that's not relevant. Anyway, I bumped into this bloke. Oh, what was his name? I don't, it doesn't matter what his name was. Listen to the story. I can imagine this, the blind man, they're asking him these questions about the Sabbath. And I can imagine him saying, look, I don't know what he did to me, person, I can see. I don't know what he did to me, person in a black cloak with a beard and blue eyes. They're missing the point. But verse 16, some of them can see uh, what's, what's literally staring them in the face. But it's not enough for them. So they call in the man's parents. I mean, the poor man, can you imagine, like, can you imagine your parents turning up to work for like a parents' evening sort of thing? You'd be so embarrassed. Wouldn't you? But the Pharisees show that they've already made their minds up in that the parents are too scared to say anything good about Jesus because they know they'll be put out of the synagogue. And that would have had huge isolating social and practical implications for them. So they have to watch what they say. So verse 24, they get the healed man back again. The, basic, the Pharisees are basically saying, tell us what we want to hear. But the man will only give them the facts, the hard evidence. And John, the writer of this gospel, I think he deliberately uses um, humor to show how ridiculous the Pharisees' denial of the patently obvious is. There's a play on the word um, no, they say, we know he is a sinner. Verse 25, he replied, the man replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He's holding up to them how silly their claim to know Jesus as a sinner is when put with the plain and simple evidence of him being cited. He's using sarcasm to show how he knows that they've already made up their minds. Verse 26. When they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Uh, he answered, I've already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? The more they ask him, the more it shows that whatever the evidence, they've already decided. It's like debates on Facebook. Let me tell you now, I'll save you some time, okay? Trying to persuade someone on social media is completely pointless. You know, Facebook and social media, that's where you go to show people just how entrenched your position is and how deep you're willing to go into it. You're not going to persuade anyone. But that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're entrenched in their position. The truth is bombarding them. A blind man, a man who is blind from birth is talking to them but they're not having a bar of it. But the man doesn't sink to their level. He could just keep saying, look, I can see, and I couldn't before. Instead, he uses reasoning and logic to do what the Pharisees have failed to do, to consider what this miracle means. So the Pharisees in verse 29 claim they, they don't know if Jesus is from God or not. So the, the healed man lays it out for them. Okay? 
He opened my eyes. He's made me see again. Well, we know from the Bible that God doesn't answer sinners. And we know from the Bible that he, he answers the godly who do his will. Um, this miracle has never happened before. So if this man wasn't from God, he couldn't have done it. So the inference is, Jesus is from God. His reasoning is watertight. So the Pharisees have got no rational comeback. Uh, so all they've got left is to attack the man's character. You were steeped in sin at birth. See, the Pharisees are blinded by their self-sufficiency. They think they already know everything. They think that all of their assumptions are correct. They're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, and it causes them to react against him, to screw their eyes up, put their fingers in their ears, and go, la, 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 la. Is that you this morning? Have you written off considering Jesus is objectively real and his claims are true? Does Jesus claim that you need him to save you is the most important claim you will ever consider. So I urge you, don't dismiss him just because most people do. Don't dismiss Jesus just because the intellectual framework we pick up from our culture tells us that we shouldn't even consider this evidence. Or maybe you've written off Jesus because deep down, you know that if you believe in him, it will mean great change. Well, you'd be right. Following Jesus means giving your life over to him, denying yourself. And sometimes that can feel like part of you is dying. But just over the page, 10, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus comes to give us life, life to the full. Okay, briefly then, let's have a look at what happens to this man who's been healed. As he looks at the evidence. Did you notice that through the narrative that how this man describes Jesus changes? So in verse 11, he describes, calls him, he's the man they call Jesus. Then verse 17, he's um, faced with the question, like, how could a sinner perform such signs? Uh, the healed man says, he's a prophet. Um, verse 33, as we just saw, uh, using reason and logic, he concludes that Jesus must be from God. And then finally, verse 38, when Jesus asks him if he believes that Jesus is the Son of Man, that is, if he believes Jesus is God's rescuer, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. It's like things become gradually clearer. When I used to work as a radiographer doing x-rays and CT, and back in the old days, before things went digital, we'd quite often have to go in and out of a dark room you know, to process photographic stuff. It was completely blacked out except for a dim red light. And at first, you could hardly see anything. But eventually, you 
things would become clearer. Your eyes got used to the light, and then you could see enough to separate the films. This is, seems to be what happens with this healed man. There's no sudden conversion, no immediate emotional response or thoughtless response. But a clear-headed, ordinary man weighing up the extraordinary evidence and coming to a reasonable conclusion that Jesus is God's rescuer. And an encouragement for us as we share Jesus with people is that this man came to this belief in the face of opposition, under pressure to deny Jesus. Indeed, seeing the irrationality of the Pharisees' stance and their opposition helped him to believe. Opposition won't stop people coming to faith in Jesus. Opposition won't stop people coming to faith, and it may even help them. We're not called to a blind faith in Jesus. We have these eyewitness accounts, the Gospels. And like the man who was healed, we can weigh up things, things Jesus said, things Jesus did. Jesus claimed to be a God rescuer, to save us, to forgive us, and give us eternal life, to be God himself. We can weigh all of that up. They're extraordinary claims. They're unique claims. But that doesn't make them not true. So I urge you to keep looking at the evidence and see where it leads you. And if you are already believing in Jesus, don't let anyone accuse you of setting your brain to one side in order to believe Jesus. No, the reverse of that is true. It's only blind faith in preconceived assumptions about what can be true that allows anyone to dismiss Jesus out of hand. You can only dismiss Jesus out of hand through blind faith. Finally then, the question is, do you see? Do you believe Jesus is the light of the world, rescuing us from the darkness of separation from God? You see, light can have two effects, as we saw with the children. It can illuminate and show the way, or it can blind us. So verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Jesus is God's rescuer. Jesus is how God has loved us saving us whilst we were still turning our backs on him. But every time we encounter Jesus in the Bible or in prayer, there's no neutral ground. There's no stain still, no fence to sit on. We either move to believe and trust in him, either for the first time or deeper and fuller, or we move further into our self-sufficiency, like the Pharisees, blindly convinced that we've got it all sorted. At verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, to those who know they need rescuing, 
Jesus' light gives spiritual sight to see him. But his light also blinds the self-sufficient, handing them over to their belief in themselves. To sum up then what we've seen, well, first of all, we thought about this man's suffering. And as we encountered the suffering, think of this man's mum and dad when he was born, born without sight. What questions must they have been asking? Why us? Why him? Why has God let this happen? Wouldn't you love to just be able to jump in a time machine and go and see them and tell them that 2,000 odd years later, their son's story was still bringing people to faith. God is in control and God is good, even if it may take eternity to find out how. We've seen through this conversation um, of Jesus and the conversations it's triggered that there is no, please leave your brain outside, outside our church or on our Bibles. Our faith is the coming together of our faculties of reason, our logic, our weighing up the evidence, using our eyes and our ears, and God opening our eyes spiritually to see who Jesus is. We've seen that we can be encouraged in our sharing Jesus because opposition to him will not stop people coming to faith in him. It might even help. And we've seen that our response to the light of Jesus is key. Will you turn away from Jesus, retreating into the, our predetermined self-sufficiency? Or will you follow the trail of evidence and trust him to rescue you into the abundant life that you were made for? Will you see the light? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus, the light of the world. And thank you for his is healing this man and for this man's faith. I pray that for each of us, you will help us to see Jesus and not be blinded, but to be continue to be in right relationship with you through him. Amen.